with songs and scriptures like that, it's uh, it's a wonder we're ever afraid. Amen? And the body gathers together and we lift up the Lord on high and we read what He's left for us. And the courage in our midst is is great. And yet, if you're like me, sometimes you find yourself still battling that human emotion called fear. The fear factor sometimes grips us, doesn't it? Did you know that fear is probably one of the more fundamental, common experiences to the natural human condition? Did you know that? In fact, let me repeat what I just said because the words I chose are very important. Fear is probably one of the more natural, common experiences to the human condition. Notice I left off the words like divine and supernatural. But just left to ourselves, fear is often our first reaction. It's where we find ourselves running and and fleeing because fear grips us. You know, the very first man ever created, when sin entered the picture, his first reaction was based on fear. He ran from God. So to the natural human, fear is a very common experience. I remember uh, this week I was thinking back to some times I've been afraid. I recall as a young probably fifth or sixth grader being so afraid that uh, when I heard a knock on our, at our door, I thought it was a knocker like this. Start off kind of slow. and My sister and I, Kim, we were watching, uh, excuse me, we were in the family room playing probably Pong, you know, one of those incredibly technological games. And uh, we heard this intermittent knocking and I looked at Kim and I said, somebody's trying to get in our house. My parents were away just for a little bit. So I said, we've got to protect the place. So I grabbed a commemorative Hank Aaron bat that my dad had purchased for me. And she grabbed a tennis racket. And behind our our family room, there was another bedroom. And then it kind of led into the kitchen area. And it's kind of hard to visualize without me showing you. But basically, as you left one of the, this bedroom door, there was some appliances. And then there was the back door. You can go down to the garage. And, and so I said, we'll sneak through this room and we'll wait behind these appliances. And when he comes in, we'll bash him. And if I miss, you take him out with the Wilson, okay? <laughs> she says, I got it. She's about two or three years younger than me. So we, we, we kneel down and we sneak through the bedroom. And the whole time, the, the knocking is getting louder. I said, Kim, they're just testing to see if we're going to answer and if we're home. So we're kneeling and we're sneaking and we get to the appliance and we jump up and we get snuck up on the popcorn popper. <laughs> Can you believe that? The fear in my heart was a whole lot more than a popcorn popper, I'm sure. I mean, my heart was racing. Kim was scared. I looked at her and I said, did you put popcorn on? And she goes, no, you did. I'm like, oh, that's right. And we had started some popcorn in the kitchen on top of the appliance. And it was popping and it was getting louder and quicker. And sometimes fear makes you do crazy things, doesn't it? I remember one time in high school, this wasn't near as funny, but we were riding to a retreat. And the bus was packed. And where I grew up, if you, didn't, if you had more than 66 for the bus, you just put them in there anyway. Anyway, so they piled us on, and 
I was near the last to get on, and they said, just sit in the back against the door. And remember the old bus, bus doors in the back? They had the lever, and if you lifted it while it was in drive, it would do what? Make some crazy noise. Well, I can see they had it tied with a string, but I'm thinking, man, that's just like double protection. So I'm just leaning against the back door, my knees in the aisle, and we're going up Missionary Ridge there in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And out of the blue, and this is a true, I'm telling you, I know it's crazy to say this. It's a true story, though. The back door just flings open. And I'm suddenly in the same kneeling position at a 45-degree angle watching the bus go that way. I'm falling backwards, and I'm thinking, I know there's cars behind me. I'm going to be toast in about a second. And then the next thing that happened is just a miracle. I was sitting, uh, the, um, I was kind of kneeling in the, the aisle of the bus, and Richard McNair, a good friend of mine, was seated in the back seat. Somehow he reached, as I was in midair watching the bus depart, he somehow reached back, grabbed my hand, and threw me back in the bus. And all I remember is, it's kind of like I'm hanging over the back of some seats about ten rows up. <laughs> and the bus driver looks at me and says, Hey, y'all quit goofing around, you bunch of weird high schoolers. And he pulls off to kind of scold us. And I kind of find my seat, and I said, I'm at the back door, just kind of slinging open, and he realizes that we weren't goofing off. And man, I was, uh, fear had gripped me. He pulls over, and cars are kind of honking and going around, and I look back, and the bus, for the first time, was totally quiet. And we all wondered, how, how did Richard, and this is, this is as truthful as I can be, I don't understand that. I think angels probably intervened to spare me, is what I really think. But somehow, he mustered the strength to catch me, save me, and throw me into the bus with strength he probably didn't actually humanly have. But it wasn't my time to go, apparently. Hallelujah. You can all say amen to that if you'd like to. Amen. <laughs> but I remember after that event, I'm thinking, wow, man, I could have died. And then fear kind of comes after the fact. You know, you have kind of fear before the fact. Fear after the fact. There's fear of the unknown. Then there's fear of the known. That's probably the worst fear if you're a kid. Like the day I shot my sister with a BB gun. That was fear of the known. Because I didn't mean to, I promise. And to this day I told her, I said, Kim, that was an accident. But I remember, uh, I was like about third or fourth grade. I got my first BB gun. Man, I was going to be Mr. Hunter Man, you know. And somehow, all I know, she comes running in from the backyard. He shot me! He shot me! And I'm like, and who else is shooting around this place, you know? And my mother gets wind that, you know, the words, he shot me, don't set well with a mom. So she comes running out, and I'm like, oh, she's talking about me. And I'm like, how dare this gun shoot my sister, you know? And anyway, she takes me, uh, I was going to say throws me, but puts me into my room. And she says, and, and we don't even discipline this way at our home, and, she, and we didn't growing up. But she said, this is of the magnitude that you will wait till your father gets home. So she closed the door, and I'm watching out the windows, a long driveway, and I'm like, man, Dad... Please work late. (laughs) Fear of the known. I knew what was coming. I mean, we've all experienced fear, haven't we? Now, as an adult, I have learned to disguise my fear a lot better. And so have you. You act like we're not afraid. But the truth is, because we're all human in some ways, and still wrestling with the natural condition, often fear gets us, doesn't it? When I was in France in 2000, and it's a long story about how I, how I ended up being there three extra days, but to make a long story somewhat shorter, the very last night the airline said, well, we can get you up tomorrow. And I'd been in the airport for two days sleeping there. 
And so they said, well, we'll get you a hotel finally, and you can sleep in a hotel, and we'll get you a cab. And so I said, great. And I thought it was going to be the answer to my uh, to the situation, at least for a night. I, I got in this cab. He didn't know any English. I didn't know any French. And I just kind of showed him this voucher. And he said, oh, great. And he drives to places that I didn't know even existed. And it seemed like we were going down and down. He gets to the bottom of this garage. It is dark except for one light on the wall and there's about three doors and there's hardly any knobs there's one one door had a knob and and he said this is where you get out in french so i got out and he stirred and sped off and here i am the bottom of this garage in the middle of of paris france i don't know where i was in paris france and i've got a big old suitcase and i've got more money than i want to tell him i've got on me because i'm for this long story and i'm like which door do I... I feel like I was on, let's make a deal. Door one, two, or three. And I spent about an hour walking this garage. And I'll tell you something. I was a grown man, and I was scared. I was fearful. I was like, how do I, how do I find my way out of here? So I, I finally found the hotel, and it was a, a real hole. So I got the room, I got a shower, got back in the cab, went back to the airport and slept. <laughs> That's what I did that night. I thought, you know, I'm probably not going to stay here. I don't want to miss another flight. And so even as adults, I mean, we battle fear. You know, I still battle fear. There are things that, that frighten me. One of the things I'm struggling with right now that really frightens me is that our church will, will build too quickly. Is that okay to say? That we'll make a decision in the... Feel good of the moment in the in the in the uh, emotion, let's say, of of where we are, and, and then we'll find ourselves in a couple of years really, really in debt, and the weight of a building payment that we really weren't expecting will begin to kind of press in on us. See, I think we can understand it because a lot of us know what it's like in our families, don't we? You bought a car when you really weren't sure you should have. It looked so nice. It really, it drove so well. And you bought that car, but six months later, you're like, man, this payment, it's a lot of money. And you see, money starts pressing in. And I've seen churches really going strong, and they build a building, and something changes. I've been saying to you for years, and I still believe this, a building will not make us a church. It will only help us do what we're already doing. Are you with me? Now, the good news about this is, the Lord has enabled us to make really good progress in our land and uh, paying that off. We only owe $75,000 on our land. Isn't that awesome? We bought it for about 400000 less than two years ago. And thanks to your generosity, God has given us an incredible amount of favor. So I think God's bringing me to a point where hopefully I'm going to have to deal with my fear because probably by the end of this year, we'll have that land paid off. Wouldn't that be great to be in 2008 to be debt-free? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Now, we've got a special offering in November, and it's called our Victory Offering. I encourage you to think about it and pray about how God could encourage you to give. But I really think the Lord's going to position us to pay that land off in this year. So then I've got to deal with, okay, our land's paid off, we're going to start saving, and God's going to bring me to deal and face my fears. And you have fears. And see, the question we've got to ask is, what do we do with our fears? Whether they're fears of the known or the unknown, whether they're fears of little children or fears that as adults we disguise. The truth is, what do we do with fear? If you're a Fox Broadcasting Company, you, you develop a TV show. 
It's called Fear Factor. And you capitalize financially on people's fears. Have you ever seen that show? I like that show, by the way. It's amazing what people will do uh, for money. I'm not sure if that's courage, but for whatever reason, people will try to address some of their fears for all kinds of reasons. You know, um, that's what we're asking. What do we do with fear? Because if it is a natural, uh, common experience for human beings, what do we do with that? I discovered the last few weeks that asking that question is really not a bad question. Because a lot of biblical heroes really struggled and wrestled with fear. Did you know that? They also grappled with, what do I do with this fear that suddenly I feel it's gripped me? Some really good people. Let me give you a list of them. In fact, I'll encourage you to write these down in your teaching tool. Take your pen and just jot down some, some really godly people who struggled with fear. They didn't give in to it. They didn't live by it forever. But let's be honest. There was a time when they were like, man, what do I do? Abraham was afraid of the Egyptian king. Remember, so he lied about his wife. Jacob was afraid of Esau. And for multiple years, ran, moved his entire family, all of his cattle and herds, because of his fear of one brother. Moses was afraid to go back to, go back to Egypt to take on the responsibility of leading the children of Israel out of, the, out of the sinful land of Egypt. He was afraid of that. He argued with God. Wow. David was afraid of his enemies. Now, he stood up to them often. He killed a bear, killed a lion, he slew a giant. But read the number of psalms where David cries out to God and says, Lord, arrest my fear. In fact, he ran for several years from Saul for this very reason. He was afraid for his life. Elijah was afraid of Queen Jezebel. He gave a prediction she didn't like. She got rose up in wrath and he ran away. Peter was afraid of the waves. And also of the Jewish religious leaders, wasn't he? Remember Galatians? Timothy was afraid of pastoral authority. As a young pastor, probably in the city of Ephesus, Timothy found himself surrounded by people older than he was. And his charge to teach sound doctrine, to kind of rein in idolatry and many hedonistic practices, was probably more than all he could handle. And he found himself timid. And Paul wrote to him and said, Timothy, Paul's, uh, God's not given you a spirit of fear but of love and of power of a sound mind. You see that? So these are really biblical heroes, and yet guess what? They have something in common with us. They were sometimes afraid. Guess who else was afraid? I believe the children of Israel dealt with fear on a corporate level. And that's why in Joshua 1... God starts off His instructions. He starts off His charge to these children, to His followers, with an admonition towards courage. Because that is what counteracts fear. The antidote to fear is courage. And what God does in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, is not spend a lot of time talking about fear. You know what He does? He spends a lot of time talking about courage. So take your Bibles. Turn to Joshua 1. And I want us to examine what I call the, uh, the uh, what I call biblical courage, not man-made, uh, you know, built-up pride or some macho, big-armed kind of strength, but biblical courage. Let's see exactly what uh, comprises it and, and how God explains it. Now, I want to say something to you as you find this passage in Joshua chapter one. I want to explain to you that. That while I say to you, I think the children of Israel were dealing with fear. 
And while I personally believe Joshua may have been dealing with fear, did you know, and I want to be scripturally accurate, I want to have integrity of the text, did you know that nowhere in these first nine verses does it actually say that they were afraid? Did you know that? Your lesson for this week, and it may have been last week, but your Lighthouse Study Guides talk a lot about fear. I do believe that is something that God is addressing here, but I want to make sure I, 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 I teach correctly here. It is somewhat of an assumption, but I believe it's a fair assumption. You know why? Because as God wrote this and gave it to Joshua, He, he knows that 40 years earlier, they had been given the same command. And what had they done at Kadesh Barnea? They had heard the report from 12 spies. Ten said, it's impossible. We can never win. We're scared. Two said, oh, we can do it. God is with us. And the whole nation gave in to fear and spent 40 years, listen church, wandering out of unbelief and fear. So I do think as they reach the precipice now of going into the promised land once again, finally God says perhaps, and I'll personify this in my own human way, okay, we're not going back to old patterns. That's kind of what God's saying. We've been here before. You chose to disbelieve and live in fear, but not this time. So Joshua, I'm going to address what I think is probably the first emotion you're all going to feel when I tell you that the promised land is next. So Joshua... Don't give in to fear this time. That's kind of how things go. It's kind of a backdrop. So from that angle, I do think they were fearful. And God addresses it right off that. He injects them with strong teaching about courage. Look with me at your Bibles. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Let's see the three components to biblical courage. The first one's found in verses 1 through 5. And in fact, on your teaching too, I want you to draw a circle. I want you to divide it into three parts, kind of a pie chart. I'm going to kind of show you what courage is in three parts. Verse 1 says this, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, who was, who was Moses' aide. Here's what God said, verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you... Right in those first few words, you can sense the need for courage, can't you? Moses had been like their answer man. He had been with them. He, he was their initial leader out of Egypt. He had put up with all of their complaining. And Joshua had watched this. And Joshua had leaned on Moses. But there was no more Moses. And as uh, I believe it is Charles Spurgeon said, God's workmen are buried, but His work lives on. So Joshua's now faced with, with this challenge. The work lives on. We've got to conquer the land, and Moses is not around. And I love the word you there in verse 1. Excuse me, verse 2. He says, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I'm about to give them. To the Israelites. Now notice all the uh, times the word will is used. I want you to underline it in fact. Verse 3. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I what? promised Moses your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river the Euphrates all the Hittite country down to the great sea on the west no one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life as I was with Moses so I will be with you I will never leave you and I will never forsake you wow those are some pretty good introductory words aren't they those are words that show that courage is, first of all, based 
on God's promises. Listen very carefully, First Family Church. Courage does not rest within your ability to be good or to make good on your word. Courage rests on your ability to trust God and move forward. True biblical courage comes from God because it rests within His promises. For instance, you're sitting down with your spouse or perhaps it's just you as a single person working through your budget. It's the last week of the month and you've got more months left than you do money. But you're giving sacrificially. You're living the best way you know how to honor the Lord. You're trusting God. You're... You're doing what you think is right and, and it matches up with God's Word. So what do you do then? Do you say, well, you know what, God? You know what, I just, I'm just... Um, you really let me down this time. No, God has promised in His Word that He will meet all of your needs. He said in Philippians 4 that my God will supply all of your needs based on His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. So what do you do when you're sitting there over a calculator and your wife or you're by yourself and the temptation comes to say, well, I'm not trusting God this week. I can't walk forward Monday because I'm just way too scared now of what's ahead. Or do you say, Lord, I can't figure it out. But I'll get up Monday morning and we'll go forward and I'll just trust you. See, the promises of God help you get up, go to work and trust Him for things you don't see, things you don't understand. Maybe you've got a problem with someone. A relational difficulty. It's been that way for weeks. You're dead set that you're not going to go talk to them. But the Lord has been convicting your heart. And you sense the Spirit urging you to try to make this right. Maybe you can't. Who knows? But you want to try. And so you want to go talk to them. But you're fearful. You're scared. Then you hear God say to you through His Word, You know what? Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. I don't want to forgive, but, but courage means that in spite of what I'm afraid of, I will, I will obey. Because God's promises are that, that He will take care of the results. God's promises in, in all kinds of areas give us courage. I want to encourage you, First Family. I want to charge you and exhort you to lean on the promises of God. It is one of the very first components of biblical courage. If you extract this component, let me show you what you're left with. You're left with sports center strength. That's what I call it. You're left with guys that got big arms, hit the home runs, shoot the shots, girls that can run real fast or do the flips. You're left with sports and a strength. In other words, they may be good athletes. They may make the highlights. But it may not really be courage. Only God gives true courage. And that's why you can't extract the divine from the prescription. Some of what you guys need courage for, I have no doubt. Some of the things you guys need courage for are way beyond the ability of a home run hitter or a 26 miler or a basketball shooter they're only in the realm of the divine amen and you need biblical courage that comes from knowing God's promises 
Another component to courage would be the precepts of God. In other words, the word precepts is, is kind of a, a big fancy word. But it just means the teachings or commands of God. Look how in the next few verses this really plays into God injecting Joshua and the people with courage. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, here's the first thing he mentions this word. He says, be strong and courageous now and because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. It was all about God in the first five verses, wasn't it? What He had promised and what He will do. And now it seems to begin to, I mean this in the correct way, to be more about Joshua's responsibility. In other words, God's going to keep His promises. Hey, Joshua, I need you to keep them too. He says, I want you to, to lead these people that I swore to their forefathers to give them this land. Be strong and courageous. And why does he keep saying be strong and courageous? Here's why. Because you have to obey all the law my servant Moses gave to you. In other words, it takes courage to obey, doesn't it? He says, don't turn from it to the right or left, which is our natural tendency, isn't it? When fear grips in and sets its way in our life, we're like, well, I'm done with obeying God. I'm done with a forthright focus. He says, don't let that happen to you. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Instead, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. You see, much of these, these three verses here talk about our responsibility to God's promises, to, to follow His precepts. In fact, let me explain to you what the book of the law was. The book of the law was, you know it as the Pentateuch. I believe it is the first five books of the Old Testament. But it wasn't quite that way to the children of Israel. While it was those first five books, they saw it more as Moses' diary. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy, now watch me here, church. If you read Deuteronomy, you'll find that several times Moses stopped along the way and with Joshua aside, he would write in the book of the law. You ought to read Deuteronomy, maybe as a companion book to, this, to Joshua. And it would talk about how he, he wrote the different journeys and experiences and, and he chronicled their, uh, their journey. And, and in Deuteronomy 31, we find that Moses completed the book of the law and he told all of Israel to take the book of the law and to set it beside the Ark of the Covenant. So that you will not forget the Lord your God. In fact, he said, you are a stiff-necked people. Read Deuteronomy 31. He said, and when you get stiff-necked and you get, your flesh rises up, he said, remember, the word of the Lord, the book of the law is what you need to obey. The precepts of God will set your path straight. So he put it right before them. The Ark of the Covenant, the book of the law. It's that book of the law that God told Joshua, listen, that same book Moses wrote, that same book he, he pressed upon the people, that's the book you're to meditate in day and night. Now, if I understand English language, even a little bit, day and night would be about everything we live in. Would you be okay with that? I think that's pretty much 24-7, don't you? So the next time you say to me, Todd... You really want us to read the Bible a lot, don't you? Man, I'm reading it a couple times a week. Could you back off? I will say to you, no. Is that okay with you? Because day and night is the best way to read it. In fact, the words meditate here, when Joshua was told to meditate in this book of the law that Moses had compiled and, and left for them, it, the most literal translation is to mutter. In fact, we kind of confused meditation in our culture and we've bought into some of the society's view that it means to kind of sit with your arms folded and hmm. That's not meditation at all. They've stolen that word. To meditate actually means to, to audibly recite Scripture. It means to mutter 
out loud portions of the Word of God. Wouldn't it be neat if as you're living your life throughout the community 24-7 here in our town or whatever town you live in, you ran into one of your fellow brothers or sisters and first family say at Walmart or Quick Trip and you heard them talking under their breath and like Aaron, um, you know, not to be a personally offensive, but I'm just curious, man, what, what do you keep saying to yourself? You know, I see Aaron pumping gas at Quick Trip. I'm like, man, what's he saying? Who's he talking to? What if he said, oh, Todd, I'm just meditating. You might say, man, he's crazy. I would say he's biblical. He's muttering the Scriptures. Do you see how far we've come, though, from what God really wants from us? We've bought into our culture way too quickly. God says meditate day and night. Let me give it to you in our language. Man, mutter the Scripture all the time. We run into each other. We're like, hey, what you been thinking about lately? Oh, just Psalms 34.8. And we just start saying it. Thanks, appreciate that. But if you did that, if you actually muttered the Scriptures, as was told as God told Joshua to do, if you do that, you would find the courage of our church rising. You'd find the boldness increasing. Why? Because God's precepts would be taking hold of our heart. The culture would be less important. God's smile would be predominant, our, our, our focus. And, and we would find ourselves uh, just enraptured with the Word. Muttering the Word. That's the kind of attention you have to give to God's precepts if you really want to find courage. And my exhortation to you this morning is this. I would suggest that some of you do some hard examination in your life and admit to yourself the reason you lack real courage is because there's very little of the Scripture in you to give it. Again, you're probably depending on sports center strength or maybe like just brute workout strength. And some of the only things, the only way you can cross and deal with some things is with divine courage. Didn't you get that? The Word of God. I'm going to challenge you to be, to be muttering the Scriptures this week. Amen? Hope I run into you some at the bank or maybe I run into some of you at Hy-Vee and I'll hear you talking to yourself. I'll shout, Hallelujah! I'll embarrass you really good. No, I really wouldn't do that. God's promises are a part of biblical courage. God's precepts are a part of biblical courage. Last thing that constitutes and comprises biblical courage, God's presence. Look at verse 9 with me, would you? Here God kind of summarizes what He said in the first eight verses, and He he begins with this rhetorical question, Have not I commanded you? The answer there is what? Yes. And by the way, He's commanding them to do what? Be strong and courageous. He has not even mentioned the word fear yet. Think about that first family. God is not fixated on this negative, on this fear factor. God is, is, is trying to move you toward a lifestyle of courage. And He does mention it here for the first time in this verse. He says, I've commanded you be strong and courageous. There it is again, the third time that pair is mixed in this passage. And then he says for the first time, so don't be terrified. That's, that's an outward sign of fear. The word terrified in his Hebrew form means to, to shake, to tremble. He says, don't be terrified and do not be discouraged. That's an inward result of fear. He said, you can tell when someone's terrified, can't you? Something about their visible bodily actions indicates, man, Steve's having a rough time. He's scared of something. Discouragement is harder to spot, isn't it? But both... 
are things that God says, let's not go down that road. Instead, let's be strong and courageous. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you. Circle the next word, would you? Wherever you go. In fact, you ought to circle wherever and draw a line back to the words every place in verse 2. Excuse me, verse 3. Every place Joshua went, every place his foot was to tread, God was going to give him that land, so wherever that was, he'd be with him. Can you imagine being Joshua? Maybe after he conquered Jericho and they began their, their ripple-out strategy to the north, south, east, and west. Perhaps he got in some mountainous regions. Maybe some caverns or caves. I wonder if Joshua ever thought to himself, Man, God's never been here before. Then he thought back, No, wherever I go, the Lord is with me. Every place. Now, now let me say something to you, just pastor to congregation. While all three of these things are equally important to biblical courage, as I read the canon of Scripture, I tend to see the presence of God as one that's magnified to a larger degree. Did you know that? For instance, when the disciples were, were saying goodbye to the Lord at the ascension, just, just prior to that, he had told them to, to go and make disciples. Remember that? And, and he said, baptize them and teach them. And then the very last thing he says to them is what? Oh, and remember, I am with you always to the very end of time. The last words he spoke, the same words he gave Joshua. I'm with you. It seems that as you read the, the whole of biblical literature, you find that The promise that God will always be with us is a very prominent one. The writer of Hebrews says, he quotes this from Joshua, in fact. And he says, we should not chase after money, but we should be content because the Lord has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, how can that be today since Christ has ascended? Listen very carefully, church. We can be assured of His presence today because of His Holy Spirit. And if you are a believer, you have the Spirit of God inside of you. It's a seal upon your heart. It's how God recognizes His children. That's how God is always with you. Now listen very carefully. I want everybody's brains in the turbo mode here. If you're an unbeliever and you don't believe the gospel and embrace the exclusive truth that Jesus Christ is the only way, you can say all day, well, the Lord's with me and... But the truth is, that's not actually correct. Because the Lord may be watching over the affairs of men, but He is only with believers through His Spirit. Did you know that? So it is actually false for unbelievers to say, well, you know, when tragedy happens, like 9-11, when suddenly you realize, like everybody in New York was a Christian, you know, they're all praying, they're all wanting God to work miracles. They're all saying, man, God was with me. Really? No, actually, God is only with those who believe through His Spirit. Now, God watches and intervenes, but He's only with those who believe. Now, watch this. If that's the case, I want to make a statement to you. And it is the case. Scripture, that's the case. Then how He is with us today is better than how He was with the disciples back then. Ponder that for a moment. Do you know that? How He is with us today is better because in the New Testament period, He was limited. He chose to limit Himself to time and space. 
And in John 16, you know, jot this chapter down. In John 16, he says to his disciples, watch this, it is good if I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Spirit cannot come. Guess what? In order for us to have the eternal, spiritual, limitless presence of God, Jesus had to go away. Now, I understand the disciples were, were, were freaked out by that. They didn't sit with Him because they loved Jesus. But the truth is, if He had not gone away, His Spirit could not have come. And I'm thankful that in the, the sovereignty of God, Jesus had the security and the maturity as a human. If you can even ponder this, it's hard to grasp. To say, listen, it's good if I go away because my limited, self-imposed humanity for now while good, is not as good as when the Spirit comes and can be global and worldwide. You know, right now as we pray, as we listen to the Spirit, as God's Spirit gives us courage, so can Faye Haynes in Afghanistan this morning. Amen? She's as empowered over there as you are here because of the Spirit. That's how God is with us. And I want to ask you just a real honest question. Is God with you? In other words, have you believed in the only name of Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven? When that happens, then God gives you His Spirit. Until that happens, you may be watched over, but you are not indwelt. And it is my prayer that every single person accept the gospel as the only way to heaven. And then God gives His Spirit and makes us His children and seals you until the day when He comes again. Amen? That's what God's up to. That's how we can walk through life uh, and, and, and enter into tough temptations and trials and testings. That's how we get through all those things. Why? Because God is with us. We have His Spirit. Praise the Lord for the Spirit of God. And dwells the hearts of believers. So God's promises, God's precepts, and His presence, they all work together to give us biblical courage. And if my mind serves me well, when I watched 75 to 100 men come forward last week and say, I will lead my family and my life well, I will address my fears, and I will tackle some tough things in my life, If that really was true, then I think a lot of people here, especially men, are needing some courage. Hey men, what did you write down last week? What did God bring to your mind? Uh, Wives and women and children, as, as you followed your dads up here, what did God bring to your mind? Can I ask you to help me with something? You don't have your workbook with you, but on page 120 of your participants' workbook, there's a thing called a victory marker. It's this victory marker that I want you to aim for. I want the courage that we studied today and your desire to really live a courageous life in spite of fear, to have the presence of boldness, even when you want to turn back and and stray, to say, no, God, I will press forward because of your promises, your precepts, and your presence. I will march on. I want that to lead you to a place where on November 18th, we have Victory Sunday here. Maybe you'll bring down four or five of these victory markers, and we're going to have a place here at the front 
where each person can lay those down. Or maybe each small group comes together. We're gonna, we'll give you some instructions when that day comes. But maybe you'll take this victory marker and you'll have labeled on there that based on God's promises and through His Spirit, I claim victory in the battleground of... And maybe you'll have on there depression. See, six months ago, you had never thought about tackling that. But if, if God is always with me, and He has promised and that if I obey, He will... He will uh, honor His Word, then I'll face and address this fear. I'll try to tackle this through God. Our finances, pornography. It could be a number of battlegrounds for people. I trust that today you'll leave with a, with a reliance, not on yourself, but on divine biblical courage, so that, keep these victory markers with you, It'll be in your small groups this week and every week. And I just keep marking on them and say, God, man, this is something you're doing in my life. I, I want to be victorious in that. And I know that I have to start with courage. So you promise this. I know you're with me and your word says this. I'll stake my claim on it, God. Put down a victory marker. Wouldn't it be neat on November 18th to see the front of this auditorium filled with victories that have been won in the lives of people at First Family? And by the way, it started really well last week. I want to commend the men of this church. God's done something really unique in several of our men this week. Um, and I think that's the beginning of what God might be doing as, as He's bringing us to places where we're no longer dependent upon ourselves, but we're going to depend upon God. That's the kind of courage we need to face the fears a lot of us are looking at. Amen? As we do that, as we learn how to... Live with biblical courage. You may find yourself a lot like the lady named Susan, who I read about this week in a publication called um, Heroic People or something like that. I forget the exact title. But I was searching for, for different people who had exhibited great courage in the face of fear. And I was really intrigued by Susan's story. And her human example would serve us well. For at 34, she was well on her way up and in the financial markets and was doing quite well in her business. The Lord had chosen not to bless her and her husband Mark with kids for whatever reason, so they made the best of it. And they were just all out for God. And, and they were really involved in their church, really involved in their jobs. And they just were kind of a, a good type A kind of person, just liked to be around. They just were really consistently just a joy to be around. And somewhere in that um, uh, in a sickness she had, she was misdiagnosed, and the treatment ended up causing her to be blind. And at 34... Here is this young woman with everything going for her from a human perspective, now blind, and she writes, I felt fearful, helpless, and abandoned. She says, I was attractive, in shape, in a good job. On the outside, you'd think, man, what are you worried about? But she says, I couldn't see. And so I shut myself up in my home. She says for several months, her husband Mark, who was a military officer, would say, Susan, you've got to get back out there. She said, hey, you don't get it. I'm blind. I can't see. I'm not walking anywhere. I'm not challenging anything because I don't want to trip. I don't want to look stupid. Hey, catch on here, husband man. I'm not leaving. The fear is too great. So he just prayed and he talked with her and they had these intense conversations. And one day her work called. He said, hey, Susan, we'd love to have you back. She said, no, I'm not cut out for work. And they said, well, we've kind of adapted some things and we've got a lot of things we think we could really have you help us with that it doesn't matter if you can see or not. Well, one thing led to another and um, her and Mark talked and, and he said to her, listen, Susan, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll just every day, 
I'll take you down to work. Every step of the way, I'll teach you what you need to learn. And, and I think you can learn the, the way to get there. And I'll meet you at work and I'll walk you back. I'll just kind of be your seeing eye husband. Will that work? Well, almost in frustration, she said, okay, we'll give it a shot. And for several months, Mark and Susan's white red-tipped cane made their trek from the home. They counted their steps to the bus stop. They boarded the bus. They met drivers. They met passengers. They learned the route. She would hang on his arm for months at a time, every Monday through Friday. Um, one Sunday afternoon, Mark had the courage to say to his wife, Hey, Susan, what do you think about maybe tomorrow trying that on your own? No way, she says. So he didn't do much, but each Sunday he would remind her, Hey, what do you think about trying this journey on your own? I think you can do it. And one Sunday afternoon she said, You know, I'm scared to death, but I'll give it a shot. She did Monday morning. She left home, kissed him goodbye, and she counted the steps, felt the poles. I mean, they had a path marked out that would beat Hansel and Gretel any day. It was, and she waited for the bus. She counted seconds. She boarded. She said hey to different people. She got her cue from passengers about which seat was empty. She let her, her laptop in her lap. She knew how long till the first stop. She knew how many stops there were. She got off the steps, went to the office door, which button was the elevator. And with all the advances in Braille and so forth and the way to help read things. I mean, she was in her office right on time. And she took an awesome sign. She says, maybe I can do this. It had been several months. It had been well over a year now. And she's just now feeling like she's getting back into, at least what we'd call normality. And the fear was starting to subside. She did that Monday, Tuesday. She did it Wednesday and Thursday. Friday comes along and she does the same routine. And she gets to the bus stop and um, she climbs on the bus and she says, Well, hello, Joe, which is who she got to know. And so I'm not Joe. I'm a new driver this week. Oh. So she kind of tells her story and... The new driver said, yeah, I've been watching you all week. You're one lucky lady. And Susan says, I don't know what you mean by lucky. I don't know if you've noticed, but I can't see anything. He said, no, but it's amazing. He said, I'm new, but he says, I, uh, every day there's this guy in this really nice uniform. And he just follows you around. And he makes sure you get on this bus. And then when the door's closed, he blows you a kiss and he gives me a salute. And oddly enough, every day when I come back, he's there waiting on you. Didn't you know that? Susan says in her publication that she started to cry and realized, though she never knew it, her husband had always been with her every step of the way. She talks about the courage she felt within her, knowing that even though she felt like, hey, I'm making it, the truth was, she never really was alone after all. And every day, you'll find Susan... Finding her way to work with Mark, watching every step of the way. You know, on a spiritual level, that's us, isn't it? We can't see God, but He has taught us how to live our lives. His Word lays it out for us every step of the way. And He's there with us. Sure, we can't see Him, but He's there. And our courage spiritually should be no less than Susan's was physically. To where we are willing to address and face our fears. Because victory 
is on the other side of that fear. The thing that you're scared the most of, that you dread the greatest, what you think is going to kill you, actually, just the other side of that could be the victory you're waiting on. And the first step is to look it square in the eye and say, you know what? I may be afraid, but God will give me courage to turn and face it and walk towards it. That kind of courage only comes from the Lord. I don't know what you're facing, but I pray you'll trust Joshua 1 and ask the Lord for the biblical kind of courage to face your fear factor.